Good morning. Thanks, Shane. That sounds, that sounds really good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let me open on a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father God, we thank you for Plath Park Church and thank you for the folks here this morning. Thank you for our city, O oh God, and where you've placed it in it, where you've placed us in this city, in this time, and in this place. God, we pray that your word be brought forth this morning and that it may penetrate the hearts of those listening. Thank you, God, for your mercy upon our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, good morning, Platt Park. It's, it's, uh, it's an honor to be here. Uh, let me be the first person to say thank you to Tim and, and Susie. Like Tim said, I came to Denver 12 years ago um, as a younger guy, uh, found this church at, at uh, South High School and started coming. And it was just a, it was just a great experience for me. Uh, I, I loved this so much that I stayed on the email list. And uh, so I got an email your, church, your regular church email uh, from Susie, I don't know, three or four months ago, and she was talking, she was talking about um, the work you were doing with refugees. So I, I reconnected with her. I said, hey, let's have coffee. And uh, we had coffee and then led to this. Um, I, left, I left Denver in 2013 when I felt the call on my heart that God had called me <clears throat> to go into ministry. And my wife and I, two weeks married, moved across the country to Boston so I could go to seminary. Uh, I graduated seminary and came back to Providence Bible Church, which is just north of here, and that's where I, I serve. Uh, as an African, I will say that sometimes when I go to new places to preach, uh, people are very nervous because the tradition that I come out from, right, we, we preach for long periods of time. Uh, <laughs> We tend to go, you know, our services are three, four, five hours long, and, and, and our sermons are, are, are longer. So I was looking at Christianity Today magazine uh, over, over the Christmas break, and they did a survey of 10,000 sermons of churches who put their sermons online, and they did the averages of all of those sermons. Uh, not surprisingly, the African-American Protestant uh, denomination came in first or last at 54 minutes. Catholic sermons were on the, on the opposite end at 14 minutes. So I promise you, I will get you out of here on time. Uh, see the big clock there? I'm not going to miss it. <laughs> uh, so glad to be here. I know you guys are going through a series on uh, mourning and, and death. So if you have your Bibles I am, or your devices, I'm from speaking just from one verse from Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 4. And these are Jesus' words. It says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This comes from the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, or the Beatitudes, Jesus' words. Simply put, simply put, mourning or death is part of the human experience. Um, whether we actively acknowledge that or not, uh, mourning is part of our being. And there are three ways I would like to talk about, three views I would like to talk about this morning on how we look at mourning and, 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 and death and the reactions that we have to those things. One is how we see mourning. We see mourning as, or we see people who mourn or we actively mourn in, in three different ways, I feel. One is some of us tend to sit 
in mourning too long. Two, some of us tend to move quickly through mourning. And three, I think most of us find our place in this space is we tend to be in the undefined middle. I'd like to spend more time on the undefined middle than I do the extremes. We tend to sit too long in mourning or move quickly through mourning or we sit in the undefined middle. Anybody here like to go to funerals? No one does. I don't either. It's Woody Allen who said, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> uh, when we sit in mourning too long, when we lose things in this life, when we sit too long, we tend to let it define us. We let our losses occupy our minds. We let the stench of sadness prolong in our suffering. We're always moving in this life. We always lose things in this life, right? We lose our youth. We lose jobs. We lose relationships. We lose homes. We lose friendships. We lose... We see things in this world that makes us sad. I know when I turned 30, just 10 years ago, hard to believe, that very morning, I woke up, and when I put my feet on the ground, something cracked. And I mourned, because I used to be a great athlete. Used to be in the distant past, right? I mourn that now. As we get older, we lose certain things. And sometimes those things can become our identity. This morning, I want to spend some time telling you a story of great mourning, uh, a story that is my story, and how those three views of mourning kind of apply to where I have been. So I was born in a little country in West Africa called Liberia, a really small country, now about five million people, uh, 16 different languages. I don't speak any of those languages. Uh, but all of our neighbors, um, the countries that surround Liberia, Ivory Coast, Guinea, and Sierra Leone, uh, Sierra Leone speaks English, but the rest of them speak French. So I went to school, and I learned French, and I still maintain, I try to maintain my French. Um, I grew up in a family, a big family. I'm the last of six children, loving parents. Uh, my father worked for the assistant director of the Secret Service in our country, and my father worked for a dictator. Um, did not know this as I was growing up that the dictator that my father worked for was oppressive. And in 1988, we were going about life as normal as we could, and I remember my mother got sick, mysteriously. And a month before my 10th birthday, my mother lost her life. Uh, and that was a period of mourning, deep mourning. I was nine years old. And I was really looking forward to life with my mother because my mother could not read or write. And so when I started school at seven, six or seven years old, and I started to learn and bring home homework, I realized my mother can't read or write. So I started to teach her. So losing her was a time of great, great sorrow. Um, I remember my father taking me to my mother's grave every Saturday. 
up to that point where we would spend the Saturday with my mother. And that loss, I was a sixth grader, that loss started to define who I was in school. Not long after that, in 19, at the end of 1989, a civil war started in Liberia. Um, and the country was being overtaken by a force of people who were into, they were into, what you call it, tribal cleansing, if you will. And because my father worked for the government, and our last name was the same last name as a dictator, we were on target to be killed. Um, these enemy forces took over the city of Monrovia, where we lived, pretty quickly, and they took over the country pretty quickly. And they were promising that anyone with the last name Doe, or anyone who worked for the government, would be killed. And we didn't have a chance to get out of the country, so we were stuck in the country. I remember having a conversation with my father on June 3rd, uh, 1990. And he said to me, he said, Marcus, all you guys are going to have to go into hiding because this doesn't look really good that this war, we're going to make it through this war. So my father sent me off to live with my older brother who had just gotten married. And I didn't see my, I didn't see my family from that point on for 20 years. Uh, I left home with five sets of clothes because my father said, oh, pack for two weeks. The war would end in two weeks. So I packed for two weeks. Well, the fighting intensified, and I never saw my siblings, and I, I lost track of where they were. I was with my older brother. Our neighborhood was overtaken by rebel forces who wanted to kill us, and we traveled behind enemy lines for four months. Um, during those four months, I was eating one meal a day, uh, barely drinking clean water, and nothing was right. Because in Africa, you have chickens, goats, and all those kind of things, but all those things disappeared during the war. I was fortunate enough to be one of the people that was rescued from Liberia as a refugee in November of 1990. I'd spent six months in the war, or a year in the war, and peacekeepers arrived in Liberia at the end of, 1980, at the end of 1990 because the situation in Liberia was so dire that people, there were no medical supplies coming in and the war was ongoing. The war had broken up into three, three factions, so no faction was winning the war. So in November of 1990, my brother, his wife, and I went to the port of Liberia where the peacekeepers unloaded their, their tanks and, and, and military supplies and they would take people out of Liberia as refugees who were in dire medical need of help. And uh, I remember the night we were standing on the line and they're interviewing people to get their names and where they were from and what medical need they had so they could be given qualifications to get on a ship to, to escape Liberia. And they were turning many people away and we got to the front of the line, my brother, his wife, and myself. And uh, my brother's wife was pregnant at the time. And so when the soldier looked at her and said, what's your medical need? She said, I'm pregnant. She said, he said, okay, you're free to go. You can get on the ship. He said, is this your husband? She said, yes. He said, okay, he's free to go. And then they looked at me. I was 11 at the time, and they said, well, what about him? And, I, and my brother says, well, that's my little brother. And the soldier said, well, only taking immediate family members. So he, he cannot go. And that was one of those moments that I thought to myself, man, this is where my life is going to end. And tears came down my face because this was the only family member I knew was alive, and I hadn't seen the rest of my siblings in six months. And so my brother started to walk away, and he turned around and he said, well, I can't leave him because he's my only brother and doesn't have anything else to go to. So the soldier said, okay, get on the ship, right? 
I grabbed my bags, I got on the ship, and I thought to myself, I will never, ever come back to Liberia again. Well, this, I didn't know where the ship was going. The ship landed in another country called Ghana. Thank goodness they speak English, but they also speak several other languages. They have 47 languages in their country. Um, so I had to learn two of those languages for me to exist amongst my friends and go to school and all those kind of things. It was while I was a refugee in Ghana, still mourning my mother, that my brother, who I knew was alive, went back to Liberia when the peacekeepers had calmed things down in Liberia to find my siblings, the other ones, to see who was alive. Well, he came back a few months later, and he came back with a letter. And when he gave me the letter, I was so excited because the letter had on it the handwriting of my brother that I hadn't seen in almost two years at this point. And I said, oh my gosh, he's alive, right? My siblings are alive. And I opened the letter, and uh, there was more bad news. Uh, my brother said to me, he said, listen, we're doing all right. I'm glad you're in Ghana. Uh, do the best you can in school, learn and, and make a life for yourself. For us, it's going to be very difficult. And then at the end of the letter, he said, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you that our father uh, turned himself in to the rebels. He was interrogated for five days, and he was killed. I was 12. I had been an orphan for a year and a half, and I didn't know it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, put me in a place of deep, deep mourning. I had two choices at that point. I could sit in the morning, or I could move on too quickly. Obviously, I wasn't thinking in those intellectual terms at that point, but my, my reaction to it was to try to move on too quickly. And some of us do this. The temptation to move on too quickly will push us to do things that we wouldn't normally do. We want to short-circuit the process of grief, right? So my way of short-circuiting the process was revenge. Um, some of you, maybe you guys, maybe you're not thinking revenge in your life. You're thinking when you're going through the things that you've lost, maybe you've lost relationships, you're thinking, I'm okay, I can move forward with it. So you turn to other things like relationships or work or jobs or substances. Um, those things short-circuit our mourning process. The other part of me said, I should just sit in this and tell this story and have people feel sorry for me and let that become my identity. Both extremes, I would say, will not bring you any comfort a very little comfort. Because Jesus has promised us that you will be comforted. It's blessed to mourn because you will be comforted. On the two extremes, the questions we're really asking at the bottom of those two extremes, whether you sit in mourning for a long time or you try to move on too quickly, are these two questions. One is who will comfort me? And two, when will I feel better? I ask myself those questions as a 12-year-old all the time. Who would comfort me? And when will I feel better? I went to church as a boy during those days, but a lot of the stuff that they were saying were just kind of over my head or they couldn't penetrate deep into where I was deeply hurting. So I stopped going, 
or when I went and sat in the back, and I distinctly remember the song that we used to sing in Awana group. Anybody go to Awana group? You know what I'm talking about? I love the Awana because we got to play. But the song we used to sing at the end of Awana was red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Anybody know that song? Jesus loves the little children of the world. That song really hurt me because I couldn't figure out if God loved me, how am I in this place? How am I in this place of mourning that seems it will, it will, I can never recover? My parents will never come back. Am I going to live my life always in mourning? No. Because many people came around me to comfort me. But the comforts of this world are temporary and sometimes are not enough. I'm a pastor now. And believe it or not, I'm a pastor with four other men, none of whom have great experience in death and mourning. But I do. Turns out that that's kind of my gift. When people die in my congregation, that's where I like to go. And I'm grateful for that. But even as a pastor, I cannot bring the comfort that folks are looking for. Because it'll, it will always be incomplete. I can sit with you, and we all can sit with people, but in our sitting, we must point people to Jesus Christ, who is our ultimate comforter. He has promised that you will be comforted. So those are the two extremes. So I, 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 we, 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 we are sitting in a refugee camp in Ghana, and we finally move out of the refugee camp. And things are getting better for me, and, and I'm still thinking, how am I going to get back to Liberia and find this man who killed my father and make it even? And I get word that we are going to try to come to America. It was a happy time, but it was also a very sad time, right? I'm mourning my siblings. I'm mourning my home, I'm mourning my country, I'm mourning a lifestyle that I used to live, right? We were upper middle class in Liberia. I had somebody to help me with my homework, someone washed my clothes, someone cut our grass, I had a secret service agent, I drove us back and forth from school, and in two short years, I was a refugee, still living on one meal a day, I was working on a pig farm, and I just didn't have anything. I was in deep mourning, and I didn't know how to get out. Well, we went to the interviews with the CIA folks uh, at the refugee camp. Side note, I always like to say this. When people think of refugees, I think sometimes the notion is people can just buy a ticket and come to the States. No, that's not true. We can buy tickets to go to other places, but to get to this country as a refugee is one of the hardest things that people do. Most refugees are living in a second country other than their own. Most people actually spend, most refugees spend a lifetime in a refugee camp. The average length of time that people spend in a refugee camp is 18 years. Those people are in mourning for 18 long years. Years. Excuse me. I was there for three years. I went through the interview process, got the, 
got the permission to come to the United States. I was excited because in, in, in Liberian culture anyway, when you get permission to come to America, listen, it is a joyous occasion. People celebrate when you're coming. I don't know if you've seen the movie Concussion with Will Smith and the poor Nigerian accent that he has in that movie. <laughs> but he says, you know, he says in his best Nigerian accent, he says, when I was coming to America, right, heaven was here and America is here, right? That's how, that's how we see America. So I came to America in 1993. I was an eighth grader. Uh, got to this country. One, I'd never seen temperatures below 75 degrees. And I arrived in Boston on March 31st. After, if you look at that date in history, there had been a big nor'easter. There was snow everywhere. I walked outside with my African best, which is not coats, right? And I couldn't comprehend. Somebody had warned me that it was nine months out of the year, it was gonna be cold here, but it didn't register. I thought, cold, okay, I can handle it, but not this kind of cold. <laughs> So I get here, and I'm mourning just my friendships that I left behind, right? I get to school, and my English was fine, and um, my guidance counselor gave us our schedules, gave me my schedule, and a lock, what I came to realize was a lock. I didn't know that thing with the numbers on it was a lock. Gave me my lock, gave me my schedule, and uh, first thing on my schedule was gym. I didn't know gym was short for gymnasium, so I didn't know where to go. And I got there, and the kids were, oh, because, oh, there's an African kid here, so we're going to play soccer today. So I'm ready to play soccer, and I take off my shoes, and everybody looks at me like, eh, what are you doing? <laughs> I was also mourning the sport that I love. And for 18 years of my life, I mourned. I had to struggle between sitting in it for too long or short-circuiting it and moving on. The undefined middle, that's why I like to spend some time briefly. When you are going through mourning and you're sitting and you're understanding that this loss that you have, whether it's a job, a relationship, a person, this feeling will, will rest on you unlike anything else, especially when we talk about people. And we want to navigate it well. And I must say, in this country, at least in the spaces that I'm in, people are doing it better and better now than we did before. The story that I can point you to to help you to understand, to give you some guidance in the comfort piece in mourning is a story in John chapter 11, where Jesus Christ goes and and, and he walks to Mary, and Mary's brother Lazarus is dead. And Jesus mourned, right? That used to be my favorite verse in Sunday school. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. We're out, right? When we had to memorize one thing. But he gave us a glimpse in that story, in the gospel glimpse of how we should mourn. He gets there, and Mary says, if you had been here earlier, my brother would not have died. And it says Jesus cried, like us, when we lose a friend. But he goes on, he raises Lazarus from the dead, showing us that one day we will be raised. You follow me? 
And he says to Mary, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And he leaves her with this question. He said, do you believe this? See, when we sit in mourning too long, or we are tempted to short-circuit it, the question is, do you believe that Jesus Christ will ultimately comfort you? And if you do believe that, you can navigate the spaces of mourning well. Death on this earth, where I find comfort, is that death on this earth is not final. Right? Some people say it's not a period, but it's a comma in life. The death of our loved ones is not final. If we believe, we will be resurrected. We will be comforted. In the Greek, the word comforted there is in a passive, it's in a passive tense. It's something that someone will do to you. God will comfort us. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, death, where is that thing? Paul is able to say that because he believes, deeply believes, that it will be settled. It will be final. We will be comforted. In God's salvation, we will find happiness which transcends our worldly, all of our worldly conditions. God will comfort us. So whether you're sitting here today, you're in a space where you are mourning something and you're tempted to stay too long or to go too quickly, I want to assure you that your comfort will ultimately be met, not on earth, but in heaven. Bow your heads with me. Thank you, Father God, for your word. I pray that the seeds of our heart, the seeds of your words have been landed in our hearts and will bring us great comfort as we mourn. We thank you for your grace and peace. Thank you for this congregation. In Jesus' name, amen.